Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the UK causing a chain reaction in Europe, then we have an update on the Eastern question, and last but not least, a glorious new fabrication plant that Intel is building in Ohio, and how that shakes things up geopolitically. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, the Libyan elections that we've been waiting for, ever since they got delayed a month ago, uh, they are supposed to happen in December of last year, they have essentially been indefinitely delayed. Um, this comes as the country's parliament now looks for an applicable roadmap to move forward, which I assume just means they aren't going to be having elections. Uh, we'll, we'll see where we go from here, but um, I suppose the civil war just goes on for now, and that gives more time for foreign intervention to, well, enable one side to win, I guess. And we'll, we'll just have to see. There's talk of the election happening in June now, but that is a long time away um that's well four months basically but that is june is definitely not january and january itself is not december so we've been waiting on this for quite some time it seems like that election just keeps getting farther away we'll see if we ever get our hands on it but for the time being it has eluded us all. So, that's what's happening in Libya. I expect a slight deterioration, um, especially if we actually do get the election at some point in the future. Um, I I already anticipate, and I've said this before, someone, someone is going to refuse to accept the result of the election. That's going to undermine the entire process, and then you'll have a resumption of the Civil War. But I guess the longer this goes on, this whole having the election in limbo, I guess the longer that goes on, the longer the sort of de facto ceasefire, or whatever you want to call it, goes on, where the, the reduction of violence goes on. So perhaps this is a political move, um, but this cannot go on this way forever. Eventually, either someone's going to have to win the Civil War, or you're going to have to have the election and either end the war that way, or the Civil War resumes that way. I don't see this thing where the election is in limbo as lasting for a very long time. You're probably going to get maybe a year or two at most out of this policy, and that is the, the, the two-year mark is really pushing it, I'd say. But for the time being, that is where things stand in Libya. Meanwhile, in the UAE, they proclaim to have shot down Houthi missiles during 
a visit by the Israeli president, Polona Herkog. So they're claiming victory, in a sense, a minor victory, having shot down these missiles, uh, especially after they didn't shoot down the last ballistic missiles that were sent their way from the Houthis. Uh, and while it is a bit of a victory, especially a diplomatic victory, not getting bombed while a foreign president is in your country, I would still have to say that the fact that the Houthis have the spare resources to launch ballistic missile attacks on the UAE says volumes about the strength that they've amassed, even with the horrendous casualties they've suffered in their offensives in and around the city of Sanaa. That's how I'm pronounce it, Sanaa. So, unless these missile strikes are just an elaborate ruse meant to project strength that they don't have, then it is fair to say that the Houthis are winning and that they've even seized the initiative from the coalition forces that they're fighting, in some cases taking the fight to the home soil of the foreign powers intervening in Yemen. And the UAE is bearing the brunt of this because they, they happen to be the closest. So, we'll see where this goes, and I imagine that once the Houthis have control over Yemen, that's going to put the UAE in a very, very uncomfortable position, squished between uh, Houthi Yemen to their west and Iran to their north. Both hostile to them, essentially, because Iran backs the Houthis. So, that'd be horrendous if you're the UAE, which is probably why you're still committed to the coalition fighting the Houthis. But it seems now... That the Houthis have the initiative, and we will see what they do with it. It's It definitely looks like more missile attacks are in the works than can be expected later. And the targets, uh, we'll have to see if they aim for anything grander. For now, it's just sort of terror attacks, essentially, to deal damage and strike fear rather than precision bombing attacks, which is something that they can't really do with the missiles they have. So, the the Houthis really making the most of what they have, so we'll, we'll see where this goes. We'll definitely have to see where this goes. Speaking of missiles, North Korea is reportedly testing uh, its own missiles. Now, these are homegrown missiles, which are reportedly hypersonic in nature. Now, how and Tarnation North Korea got access to that, and we don't, uh, that's a different question in, in and of itself, and I think that, I definitely think that warrants some self-reflection on our part, because we don't have hypersonic missiles in the field, uh, they might be in development, but they're not in the field, Russia has hypersonic, China has hypersonic, and if we're to believe these reports, North Korea has hypersonic missiles, uh, where are the American hypersonic missiles, uh, the jury will get back to us on that one. And, uh, yes, North Korea is testing new missiles. We'll see where that goes, too, I guess. Uh, meanwhile, France has reported that 60 jihadists have been killed in joint military operations in Burkina Faso alongside local African troops. So, this is a counterattack 
on jihadist positions. This included airstrikes from the French, as well as ground operations from the combined French and Burkina Faso militaries, and various militias working alongside the French troops as well. So, uh, another shocking casualty figure in what I've come to call the Second Great African War. We'll see what name sticks, but that's the one we're working with right now. So, Second Great African War, casualties are horrendous, especially in the modern context where numbers like these, rather than hundreds of thousands that we would see in World War II, numbers like 60 are huge for modern, the sort of modern frame of reference with regards to casualties. So this is pretty big. It's a pretty big victory for the French coalition forces in Africa. This definitely, this definitely helps them cover the flank um, in terms of their image from withdrawing from Mali. So this is definitely a well-needed victory for the French. And they're probably going to continue doing what they're doing. Because apparently this is working, at least in terms of the casualty figures. I can't say for certain if they're winning the war against the jihadists, but with figures like those, you can definitely picture them winning. Um, but I don't think the Great African War is coming to a close just yet. Um, well, uh, I have a feeling we have more chaos and destruction left from that conflict, especially looking at what's happening in northern Nigeria, where they're just passively being ravaged by this conflict. So, I believe the conflict has a lot more death and destruction in it, but France may, in the face of political embarrassment from withdrawing in Mali, may just have caught its stride again. Uh, meanwhile... In Iraq, they've conducted airstrikes on Islamic State militants and reportedly have killed nine of them. Unfortunately, also, they've killed reportedly four Syrians as well. So, that's probably a diplomatic incident that will be sort of smoothed over by Iran. That's how I see this is going. But... Iraq is now on the move against ISIS. So it appears that Iraq is a player on the a player on the board again. Now that's what it's looking like now. You can't really do this unless you've gotten enough of your shit together. So Iraq is back on the board and it'll be very interesting to see what they do especially as Syria's civil war comes to a close. And it seems like the chaos of the Middle East is starting to, starting to even out a little bit, at least in that specific belt of countries running from Iran to Lebanon. Things seem to be mellowing out a little bit uh, as the countries sort of fill the power vacuums, so to speak, and reassert themselves. Uh, the, in Syria, it's the Assad government, in Iraq, it's the current government of Iraq. <laughs> Iran was never destabilized, but 
I imagine there's still confrontation with Israel somewhere on the horizon. And this is great for Russia as they can focus, they really need to focus their attention elsewhere. So not having to be as involved in this region due to the regional players that they've aligned themselves with getting strong enough to handle the situation, that is a definite plus for Russia, a definite plus for Persia. Uh, we'll see if Iran is still able to maintain its sphere of influence with the resurgence of Syria and Iraq. That'll be something to look out for as well. Um, and even Yemen, whenever the Houthis get around to winning that war, it'll be very interesting. Because Iran has dominated as a country largely at peace. They've been able to dominate over countries shattered by war. Syria, Iraq, and in part the Houthis, although they, that one's a bit of a loose end. But it'll be very interesting to see if Iranian supremacy holds up as their allies come back from the brink of destruction. Iraq was shattered by the war against the United States. Um, Syria shattered by civil war. Yemen shattered by civil war. So once these conflicts start wrapping up, and in the case of Iraq, it's kind of already wrapped up. They have ISIS to deal with. But as these conflicts start wrapping up, and these countries start getting back on the path to recovery, and again, even resurgence, it'll be very interesting to see if the Iranian sphere of influence holds, or if they lose their influence. As Syria gets back to normal, Iraq and Yemen get back to normal, a Houthi-controlled Yemen, that is. Very interesting to see. If Iran maintains and even strengthens its position from having stronger allies, or if their allies become too strong and challenge Iranian authority. Because Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East right now, but we'll see if that holds up. So, that'll be interesting to watch for. Just thought about that one. Uh, meanwhile, just the north, I brought up Russia a second ago. Russia is now set to arm the Donbass rebels in similar fashion to the foreign backing that Ukraine's military is getting from NATO and, well, NATO. Because <laughs> I was going to say Turkey, but Turkey is a part of NATO. Uh, so Russia's basically doing exactly what NATO's doing to Ukraine. And people are upset about that. So things escalating in that regard... In Ethiopia, the prime minister of the country, Abiy Ahmed, he has visited the UAE. He's likely looking for an ally to either help him defeat the Tigray or looking to keep other countries neutral. Though Those are the two primary interests I see out of a visit like this, um, especially since he's at war. You don't usually leave your country when you're in a civil war. So he has to have a purpose. So he's either looking for help, either in the sale of weapons or energy to Ethiopia, or he's looking to keep a potential player in that civil war out. And the UAE is definitely a good place to go if you're trying to keep countries out of your civil war. Case in point, Yemen. 
where the UAE is a part of a coalition active in the Yemeni civil war. So, if that's the move where he's trying to keep intervention out of his country, the UAE is definitely a good a good starting point. And it'll be interesting to see what other countries he makes similar visits to, if he makes similar visits at all. He, this could just be a one-off thing. We'll see. And we'll pro- may or may not have to do an update on it, depending on the countries he goes to. Uh, new sanctions are being discussed by NATO countries, uh, sanctions on Russia, that is, in the event of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, China basically officially backs Russia now, which is something we already knew, but it's official now. China's position is with Russia on the issue of Ukraine. Uh, it seems to me that the leadership of NATO and the US and the EU are bankrupt for ideas. That's what it seems to me. Because every time there's talk of Russia or even China in some cases, the first thing that comes out of the mouth of people on how to counter them is sanctions. Even though sanctions don't work. The sanctions that have been leveled against Russia have not destroyed the Russian economy. They haven't they haven't caused Russia to collapse economically. It's not an economic blockade, and if it is, it's not an effective one because the enemy's the so-called enemy's economy is still kicking well enough to go on. So the fact that we're still discussing sanctions as if it was a an effective policy, seen even though it, even though it proves that it isn't constantly, it, it's just not effective against larger countries, countries even just as large as say Iran. Iran sanctions are limited in their effect on countries like Iran, and all it takes is Chinese investment to start undoing the event, the effects of those sanctions, which is another thing not taken into account when people talk about sanctions. Well, if you're going to sanction Russia, they're just going to turn to China. They're, they're just going to turn to China and all of the other countries you've sanctioned. And together, collectively, they're going to try to build an alternative to the dollar system. And that's what's really happening is with the Belt and Road and the, the, digital U, the talk of the digital yuan. This is what's happening. And because the United States has abused its power as the reserve currency of the world, the countries that have been abused are now looking for the alternative, and China is providing that alternative, Russia is opting into that alternative, lots of other countries, courtesy of the Belt and Road, are likely to opt into that alternative, because if they don't, well, what's the alternative to the alternative? You're going to get sanctioned. If you do anything America disagrees with, and joining the Belt and Road is something America disagrees with, so you either run the risk of getting sanctioned and having your life ruined, or you join the other block where there are no sanctions, and you you just do business. So, I definitely feel that the current set of policies regarding Russia only seek to get us into trouble. 
That's what it feels like. Yeah, that's what I can observe. And when I observe it, it gets even worse because the policies bounce back and you get a stronger Russia every time. You sanction Russia for, what, eight years now? Eight years since 2014? Almost. We're coming up on eight years because 2022 has only just started. So for seven and a half, we'll say seven and a half, seven and a half years of sanctions... And Russia still has the ability to oppose you in ways that you can't respond to. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the fact that sanctions are not going to, they're not going to work against Russia. And they're certainly not going to work against China. Who's going to go along with those sanctions? No one. China's a massive trading country. No one's going to go along with those sanctions and commit economic suicide. And Russia can weather the storm of the sanctions anyway. So sanctions should be taken off the table. They're just not anywhere near as effective on countries this big as people keep imagining that they are. And by people, I mean folks like Blinken, Biden, and Jens Stoltenberg, and... All these military and foreign relations officials who demonstrate to me that they have no clue what they're doing, uh, especially with the fact that they have no other solutions. They don't have any other solutions other than sanctions, to the point where they're talking about sanctions that are going to hurt the U.S. and European economies almost as much as they're going to hurt the Russian economy. Except Russia has access to China and the Belt and Road. And the West doesn't. So they have a backstop. The the country being sanctioned has alternatives and a backstop. The countries doing the sanctioning do not have that. And we're talking about hurting our own economies at this point. I, I think it's time to put the sanctions down. That's That's what it looks like to me. It's time to put the sanctions down. Uh, back in America, though... <laughs> The <clears throat> the U.S. is now in the process of nominating a new Supreme Court justice following the retirement of Stephen Breyer. So this is gonna un- this is gonna open up a Pandora's box of political infighting. And the only reason people are gonna give as to why we shouldn't be doing this is because China and Russia are there. And quite frankly. I'm not concerned about China or Russia. I'm more concerned about my government getting me into a war that we don't need to be in and creating problems and creating enemies that we, quite frankly, don't need to have. But anyway, uh, that's that's what's going on in America. There's another big thing going on in America, and I'll get to that at the end of the episode. And it is glorious, I tell you. It's glorious. But back in Europe, Denmark, in a shocking turn of events has undone all of its COVID restrictions. And they're the first EU country to do so. Now, what did I tell you last episode? Literally just last episode. Britain undoing those restrictions was going to be a signal to other people in other countries that had written all over it, why can't we have what they have? Why can't we have what they have? And now... 
Denmark has what they have, and it spreads. So this is likely the beginning, just the beginning, of a chain reaction that's being set off by Britain. And I said, I said as much that this was possible. I said we were going to see conflict between the EU and the UK over this. And I'd imagine that the EU government, because this is national level, this is Denmark, not the EU. I'd imagine they're upset about this because the EU has gone all in on lockdowns. Germany and France in particular have gone tripled, quadrupled down on lockdowns and restrictions. So now we have a country within the EU bloc undoing all their COVID restrictions. So now, instead of just Britain having less COVID restrictions and the EU imposing sanctions and travel bans on Britain, a country outside of the bloc, now, in order to be consistent with those policies, they would have to inflict val- they'd have to inflict those same measures on Denmark a country within the EU, or they'd leave Denmark be and basically admit that not being locked down forever is an option within the EU. So, again, like I said last episode, Britain existing, just existing, independently of the EU, poses an ideological danger to the EU and really an existential threat to the EU's existence because of that. Because just last week, it was only Britain who had done this. Um, Now, granted, Sweden never locked down. That's just fair to bring them up. But Britain was the first to lock down and then undo the lockdowns completely. Denmark is now the second country in Europe to have locked down and then undo the lockdowns completely. Now we look to see who comes next. And on, a, on another note, we're already starting to see the unofficial precedent rule take effect here. Because uh, it started with Britain, and now other countries are following the unofficial precedent. Gee, this is quite the observation I've made, and I get to test out... I love testing out this hypothesis of mine. It's just a very fun pastime watching... The Europeans do these things. But anyway, yes, it seems like lockdowns are coming to an end in Europe or this is going to come to a head in some sort of row or diplomatic fight between the locked down and the unlocked. The restricted and the unrestricted. There we go. But now that conflict isn't an EU versus UK thing. It's an EU versus EU thing. That that's what it's going to be at some point in the future, as I'm pretty sure that Denmark isn't the only country with people eager to get rid of this. Uh, the Netherlands, in particular, comes to mind, uh, as they were the first country that I knew of that had serious rioting, serious rioting over the issue of the lockdowns and mask mandates and vaccine. And now with the vaccine mandates, people are really just over it. Uh, France, people are over, I know for a fact that people are over it in France, but the French government, uh, Macron in particular, says no. So we'll see if that wins him the election, or if it costs him the election. And, well, we'll just have to wait. 
but it is almost February, so that election gets ever closer. We're already starting to hear, see stories about his potential candidates. I've noticed Marine Le Pen doesn't get talked about at all, and that was sort of the primary candidate that I thought was going to be his opposition, but now there's talk of this new guy. I have forgotten his name, but he seems to be making waves as of late <clears throat> at the last moment. So we'll see if either Macron or Le Pen can make a comeback from that, or if all of that attention that he's, the, the third guy is getting is really just sort of noise and the race is actually between who we thought it was the whole time. We'll really just have to see the election results to, uh, you know, truly dissect that. Because uh, right now we're in the fog of elections. So things aren't quite as clear as they otherwise could be in France. But I imagine those election results are going to be very, very interesting. That's France, who has elections and... We'll see if Libya can get around to getting those themselves. Uh, but that's Denmark. Er, there's also there was also an F-35 that fell off a carrier uh, in waters close to China. So now there's fears that China might get there first. And I'll add, you know, in all my isolationist glory, this would never have happened if we didn't have warships sailing in anywhere near China. And actually. Now that I think about it, it physically couldn't have happened if we didn't have warships sailing near them. So that's just my uh, two cents on that issue. And now we jump into the meat. Now, let's get into the meat. So we'll start with Ukraine. Uh, and it's just a little bit. But, uh, just a little bit. For now. For now. Uh, Blinken and Wang Yi. Uh, they talk with, to each other on a phone call. Where Wang Yi essentially said that China would stand with Russia over the issue of Ukraine. And basically, from the Chinese viewpoint, Russia's request for NATO, uh, their request for NATO to cease its expansion towards Russia was very reasonable. Uh, the US, however, refuses to even consider the idea of not expanding NATO. So the talks between American Russian representatives for the past few months have gone nowhere, and the, this talk between Blinken and Wang Yi is no different. Meanwhile, U.S. Javelin missiles uh, and missile launchers have arrived in Ukraine. Now, this has been long promised um, before that U.S. was reluctant to give more sort of offensive-type weapons to Ukraine. But I guess this sort of weapon is on the table, as it's technically viewed as defensive, but it's a missile launcher, so it can be offensive if you just use it offensively, because, well, any weapon can be used offensively or defensively, it just depends on the purpose, well, and the intent. But, if we look at the costs here, because this is about 200 million worth of aid, so the launchers themselves cost around 130,000 each and each missile costs about 112,000 each. The numbers may or may not be higher. I tried to round up on the launcher cost due to inflation. I couldn't get it in an adjusted number for that one. So it was like 126,000, but that was a 
2016 number, I believe. So I brought it up to 130,000 because the cost of the missile was 70, 78,000 before in, I think it was 2008. <clears throat> and now the cost is 112. So that's a pretty big jump counting for inflation. So the jump that I've made, the rounding up for the cost of the launcher probably isn't sufficient, but we're just going to run with this 130,000 number I've given. Uh, 130,000 for the launcher, about 112,000 for each missile, and common sense, you don't need to buy one launcher for every one missile, you just get a launcher and then buy plenty of missiles to, you know, go into the launcher and then you fire them. <laughs> so, <laughs> doing a little bit of math, Ukraine could get, in theory... 200 launchers, we'll just say they got 200 launchers, and with that, they could have a stockpile of over 1,500 missiles, javelin missiles, to go with those javelin missile launchers. So it's a pretty hefty stockpile, and a lot of launchers that you can use. Uh, the exact number was like 1,550-something. So these are that's a lot of missiles that you can get with the 200 million worth of weapons that America is giving them. Uh, and I, I do these numbers because, well, I thought it was interesting to do the numbers. That, and we don't exactly get a precise breakdown of all the weapons the United States gave Ukraine. So just going with what we know that they're getting and the numbers that we know are involved, could be more, could be less, uh, this could be what they've gotten. If it's just javelins and javelin missiles, maybe they got more launchers with fewer missiles. Maybe they got fewer launchers with more missiles. S but I feel like a good 200 launchers and a stockpile of over a thousand and a half missiles seems pretty reasonable. Uh, especially if we're factoring in the potential of a high-intensity combat zone. Which is what you're going to get if there's a Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're going to be firing off these missiles like it, well, like they're rocks, like they're sticks and stones. So you're going to want to have a lot of them, and you're going to have, you're going to definitely want more missiles than launchers, so that the people who have the launchers have a plentiful stockpile to rely on. And 200's a good number. Uh, I was going to do 100, but 200's a good number. So anyway, my speculation aside, it seems like some people want a war, but I do not believe that it's going to go the way that they, and by they I mean people in the Pentagon and people in Washington and people in the NATO military uh, higher-ups, they seem to want a war. But I do not believe that that war is going to go anywhere near the way that these people want it to. Now, if I had my way, America would be an isolationist nation. And we probably wouldn't even be talking about this. And if we were, we'd be looking at a European war, not a world war. Because that, that's what we're looking at right now. Uh, again, going back to my talking on the dominoes and how Ukraine is the domino that people think Taiwan is for kickstarting a potential third world war but due to the 
nature of who the aggressor states have to be in order for these conflicts to escalate. Ukraine is not going to attack the Donbass if America is preoccupied with Taiwan because China is the aggressor in Taiwan and Ukraine has to be the aggressor against the rebels in the Donbass for there to be an escalation of this war. Russia's not going to attack. Belarus isn't going to attack. The, the rebels aren't going to attack. Ukraine has to do the attacking in order for there to be an escalation of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine's not going to do that if the United States is busy in Asia fighting a war against China over Taiwan. However, if there's a war in Ukraine, well, there is already a war, but if the war escalates because Ukraine attacks the rebels and Russia and Belarus come in and then the United States and NATO come in, if that happens, that leaves the open door for China to attack Taiwan and get rid of that issue once and for all because China... The, the situation between China and Taiwan is a lot less complicated. There's a lot fewer steps involved in f that conflict. China can ignite it unilaterally, and they have reason to, whereas Russia, they, they could ignite the conflict unilaterally as well, but they've set themselves up to where the rebels have to be attacked before Russia intervenes. Either that or Ukraine joins NATO, in which case then the Russians will, in, will attack directly. So I guess that is a possibility. Ukraine joins NATO, but it doesn't look like they're going to be allowed to join NATO. That hasn't stopped NATO from acting as though Ukraine was a part of NATO anyway. So uh, we'll, we'll see if the weapon systems get deployed to Ukraine that Russia finds intolerable, because that could also provoke them to take the direct action that they don't want to take. So if Ukraine, if the Ukrainian war escalates, Taiwan can be attacked. If Taiwan is attacked, the Ukrainian war cannot escalate. It's that That's the way it is due to the way the players and the pieces are set up. So, if there is this war in Ukraine, it will escalate to a world war. Just due to the nature of the dominoes involved here. If there's a war in Taiwan, it'll be a limited war. It'll be a limited war. Because of, again, you basically block off any conflict escalation in Ukraine. But a conflict escalation in Ukraine opens the door to conflict escalation in Taiwan. So, a Ukraine war will quickly escalate to a world war um, because the United States is involved. And it is because the United States is involved making promises to Ukraine and promises to Taiwan if we get drawn in, in Ukraine that opens the door for Taiwan to be invaded. If the United States was not a part of these two conflicts, um, a war in Ukraine would be a European war and it wouldn't have much to do with China or Taiwan. That would just be a, a separate conflict fought at some different time. And as a matter of actually, it would probably already be resolved if it weren't for US intervention. And we'd just be talking about the island of Formosa, who happens to be a part of the People's Republic of China. That, that That's the way it would be. So, this war that these people in the Pentagon and in Washington, D.C., because that, that's who's really running the show here. Not quite Biden himself, but it's, it's America. America's running the show here, and NATO's sort of just the, 
just being strung along, although they're definitely talking the talk, uh, but not quite walking the walk alongside us. And that's probably because they don't have much to walk with, but, but that's the way it is. If there's a war in Ukraine, it becomes a world war. If America wasn't involved in everyone else's issues, it wouldn't evolve into a world war. It wouldn't, well, it wouldn't devolve, I should say, into a world war. It'd just be a European war, and it would be a very interesting thing to look at uh, and observe from thousands of miles away. Instead, I have to fret about getting drawn into yet another European war. And I have to listen to people who don't understand where America is on a map explain to me how Ukraine, well, how defending Ukraine is somehow in America's interest to do. Even though it's not, Ukraine's not an ally, they're not a member of NATO, they don't have a defense guarantee from the United States, there's no reason for us to be there. But we're there anyway, so okay. Uh, and the same goes for Taiwan. And all these unnecessary conflicts that we're slowly but surely being drawn into by the will of our foreign policy team because they're ingenious. They're genius ideas. <coughs> <coughs> oh boy. The idea of these people being geniuses is very comical. Uh, but but anyway, <laughs> the, they're not geniuses at all. In fact, I'd, I would go as far as calling them incompetent. But anyway, that's that's what we're looking at in Ukraine. Which is why, even though I'm, I'm myself, and I'll be honest, I'm kind of tired of talking about Ukraine every episode... And I would love to take a break from them, but there's always just enough for me to talk about. There's always some set of new developments that kind of deserve the attention of a certain geopolitical podcast that you may or may not be listening to right now. But I'll be honest, I, I am a bit tired of talking about this issue and the fact that it is so unnecessary. It's such an unnecessary issue. Maybe that maybe that's just the isolationist in me. Maybe I maybe I'm just able to see it because of my worldview. But it's so unnecessary to me. Why are we over there? You maybe maybe it's necessary for Germany to fight this war. Maybe it's necessary for Poland to fight this war. I know damn sure it's def it's necessary for the Ukrainians to fight this war. This is this is their home. Maybe it's necessary for the Ukraine for the Ukrainian. Maybe it's necessary for the Romanians to get involved or Hungary. But why America? Why is America over there? Why are American troops and American military equipment being sent to this area of the world? Why are we over there? It's very unnecessary to me. It's the war the second world war is over. The Cold War is over, and now it seems we, we're just trying our damnedest to get into this Cold War 2.0 thing. Now, uh, in that call with Blinken and Wang Yi, Wang Yi called for all sides to back off from the Cold War 2 um, sort of talk, from, from that talk and from that mentality. I would agree, and quite frankly, 
the easiest way to undo Cold War 2.0 would be for America to act in American interests, not in Ukrainian or European interests. Or in the case of Asia, acting in Taiwanese interests. If America acted in American interests, there wouldn't be a Cold War 2.0. As a matter of fact, there wouldn't have been a Cold War 1.0. America leaves Europe after the Second World War, there's no Cold War. For us, maybe there's one between Britain and the Soviets. But that's their Cold War. That's nothing new to them. It's nothing new to Europe at all. But America has no reason to be anywhere near Ukraine. We certainly don't need to be sending them weapons. And I'd imagine that should there be a conflict that breaks out and all those weapons get basically stolen when the Ukrainian military gets encircled by Russia in a matter of days, all those hundreds of millions and maybe even billions by that point in time, all that equipment's just going to fall into the hands of Russia. They're going to dissect it. They're going to see how it works, what makes it, how it ticks, what makes it tick. And they're going to know everything they need to know about American anti-vehicle weaponry because we've sent them so many of these Javelin rockets and rocket launching systems. And who knows what else we will have sent to the Ukrainians by the time a conflict breaks out here. It seems like a disaster just waiting to happen. And ultimately, my belief is that when all of this is said and done, Russia's just going to be one Belarus and one Ukraine bigger than it was yesterday. The Russia of tomorrow is going to be a juggernaut compared to what it was yesterday. And I genuinely do not believe that the folks getting us into this disaster are able to see that. And I I know for a fact they're not able to see the consequences of their actions because we still have people having this fantastical idea of siding with Russia to leverage them and balance them off against the rise of China. I was watching a a Steven Crowder episode where they had one of the the show's writers giving his points on why we shouldn't get into a war over Ukraine, and I commend him on having the courage to do that and speaking out against the position of his boss, basically. But one of the things about his points was that uh, not that we just shouldn't be there off merit, but instead that because we have a bigger threat in the room and that's China from their perspective. But then they go on to say that we should we have to be friends with Russia to use them against China. But why would Russia do that? Because he's not he was not the first to argue a point like that in this entire foreign policy space talking about these great power the return of great power rivalries and great power competition, he is far from the first to have uttered sentiments like that. But everyone who brings up this point of balancing off against China, courtesy of Russians, they fail, in my view, they fail to answer the simple question, why would Russia do that? Why would Russia work with the United States after everything that we have done and everything we're currently doing to provoke them. Because that, that's what's happening in Eastern U- 
in Eastern Ukraine and in Eastern Europe. We're, pre- we're constantly threatening the Russians with sanctions. We're constantly sanctioning individuals within Russia. We're constantly threatening uh, Germany to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We're constantly, constantly at odds with Russia. We have troops in Syria, a Russian ally, uh, when U.S. troops shouldn't be there. We have NATO bases in Kazakhstan, which Russia does not appreciate at all. Why would Russia side with us against China? Why would they do that? I mean, after everything, the the current down spiral of relations between Belarus and its neighbors, Poland and Lithuania and the Baltics, over them meddling, basically, and giving their two cents on the elections in Belarus, which is really just not their place, and even in the case of Lithuania, raising the flag of the opposition party at their, what was it, their embassy? That's just not your place. If, If Belarus had done the same over, say, a Polish election, they'd be up in arms. But it is somehow okay to do that when it's a Belarus election. And uh, I, I'm of the opinion that that election is definitely not on the up and up. And that man did not win by 99.99% of the vote. But that's their country. That's Belarus. That's not Poland. That's not Lithuania. That's not our place to go trying to determine for other people how they are to live. Russia cares greatly about Belarus, and all this deterioration of relations with Belarus has done is drive them closer to Russia. And, well, being hostile to Belarus at this point is essentially being hostile to Russia because everyone accuses Belarus of being a Russian puppet, so the hostility just immediately transfers over from being hostilities against Belarus to being hostilities against Russia. So, with the situation with Belarus, the situation with Ukraine, the recent situation with Kazakhstan, where a lot of Western countries are being accused, and perhaps rightfully so, of, well, I believe rightfully so, of trying to instigate an overthrow of the Ukrainian government through the use of mobs uh, who were well-armed and well-trained and well-organized. All this on Russia's peripheries and their borderlands. Remember last year, the, U- the UK sailed a destroyer within 12 nautical miles of Sebastopol and got shot at by the Russians when they did this. And, the, and even before that, the US was going to send two warships to the Black Sea as well, themselves. But we turned around at the last second, the UK goes through. All of these provocations... Because you can't say that Russia's provoking us. We're over there. Russia's not over here. We're the ones doing all the provoking. We're the ones doing all the poking. Why would Russia ever side with us? Especially side with us against a country that has constantly had their back while we were doing all of that nonsense. Why would they side with us? Why would they side with us against China when it has been China that they've always been able to rely on 
every time we go over to Russia trying to start some shit? Why would they side with us? And I, I feel like that very simple question goes unanswered and even unasked. Honestly, it goes unasked by people in the foreign policy and geopolitical realm. No one asks. They just assume that Russia would go along with it if we tried hard enough. Well, I don't see it happening. People are banking. People are banking, really banking. Uh, people who believe in that idea are really banking on this Sino-Soviet split happening within the next uh, six to eight minutes of the Cold War happening. And they say Russia and China don't actually like each other. They really hate each other. If we can work with Russia, we can use them against China. China and Russia were getting closer together before the United States had the bright idea of antagonizing both of them at the same time. But now we've driven, now we've accelerated them coming together out of panic and out of self-preservation against us. We're not going to use Russia to balance off against China. China and Russia are going to use each other to balance off against us, America. To balance off against Europe. To balance off against the Quad. That's what's going to go down. That's the reality of what's happening right now. So when I hear people have these fan, these fantastical ideas of Rush, balancing Russia off against China, I just don't see it as being based in reality. Especially just looking at the past five years of Russo-American relations. This Sino-Soviet split, where we use Russia against China instead of China against Russia like we did in the first uh, Cold War, it's just not going to happen in this decade. Maybe at some point down the line, Russia and China will have a falling out. That's just how, that's just how things work in the real world. No alliance lasts forever. But it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in the next 10 years. I would say that the alliance between Russia and China has at least a generation in it, probably more, because they greatly benefit from working with each other on economic, on the economic basis, on the security basis, on the military basis. They, they complement each other incredibly well. I don't see them falling apart within the next five to ten minutes of Cold War 2.0. Then you have other fantastical ideas that people have engaged in, like a partisan war in Ukraine. I talked about last episode. I don't think that's going to happen at all. The population is demoralized to the point that they don't even want to acknowledge the fact that they're at war. That's not a population that's going to raise up, that's going to rise up in arms against the Russian occupier. That's a population that's just going to fatalistically accept defeat at the hands of Russia and accept and into the war, even if it's a highly unsatisfactory one, and be assimilated. That's what's going to happen. And Belarus is going to be a very willing participant in their assimilation with Russia. And again, when all this is said and done, Russia is going to be one Belarus and one Ukraine bigger than it was yesterday. <sighs> That's what I see in Ukraine. Uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Lots of nonsensical ideas and fantastical ideas that are not rooted in reality 
or quite frankly, just outright ignore the reality of what is observably true. But I am not done today because I have another segment. And this one is one that got me all giddy. We have uh, a big story, a big story. Uh, In fact, my boss was talking about it just off the cuff. Uh, And that is Intel, the company. They are building a new chip plant in Ohio. And this, this gets my gears going. So, Intel, which is a major American tech company, is now set to invest $20 billion dollars into the building of two new fabricator plants. Uh, These are microchip factories. Two of these new plants in Ohio with plans to eventually have up to eight of these fabricators at this new compound. Uh, They plan to have that, those eight by the end of the decade. And I hope that everything goes relatively smoothly. My response to this is yes, about damn time. Uh, given that America, and a lot of the world, I should say, is in a bit of a chip shortage right now due to bottlenecks in global and even certain national supply chain networks, nearly all of those have been caused by lockdown measures, To uh, This move by Intel is, in my opinion, exactly the sort of solution we need to the problem. Uh definitely what we need in my eyes. I've been saying this for the longest. I've been saying for the longest that we should manufacture things we need here in the United States. Granted, I am far, far from being the first to say such things, but where I've always, it's where I've always stood on economic issues. We we should manufacture here. It just makes sense to me. I don't know about you, but It makes sense to me. And plus, I never really bought into the idea of the global division of labor. I mean, it sounded nice, but, you know, then there was that little piece of me that said, yeah, that's all nice and all, but we should make things here. That just makes... uh, Making things in your own country makes sense to me. Not making something and having to import it. Uh, the entirety of it, you know, not making any of it and having to import it seems like something you don't want to do unless it's an absolute necessity um, because that makes you vulnerable. I mean, uh, but anyway, those unfamiliar with the global division of labor, that's basically where each country only produces the things that they're really good at producing. And instead of producing the same thing as someone else, um, someone who does it better, Instead of producing a less good version of that same thing or product or service, your country, in the eyes of the people who buy into the global division of labor, your country would be better off uh, importing it from the countries that make a certain thing better. So, say for instance, we're America and we manufacture cars. So, we manufacture cars, we make those pretty well. And we want, say, sunglasses or ceiling fans. And, but we don't make them as well as, say, Korea and India. 
So instead of making a little bit of each and importing the rest, like I would advocate, where you keep a little bit of industry on hand at all times, instead of that, the Global Division of Labor advocates that you just don't manufacture ceiling fans or sun uh, glasses, and you just import the sunglasses from, say, Korea, and then you import the ceiling fans from India, and you use your own production of cars to export to other countries because they don't make them, say, as well as we could. So that's my little example to give you an idea of how the global division of labor sort of functions in its theory. And it's really the basis of modern globalism. But... I disagreed with that idea from the get-go for the simple reason that successful countries have to produce a little bit of everything. It, it's okay to have your economy lean heavily on a thriving industry, maybe it's for export, and it employs a lot of people, it makes you very wealthy, and helps it helps you industrialize or something along those lines. It's okay to have certain industries that are just huge and your entire economy sort of orbits around those industries but countries that only have one thing to offer throughout all of history have always been incredibly vulnerable economically uh, i mean honestly what would saudi arabia be without oil what would they be without oil? what would brazil be without its agriculture what would they be or the caribbean nations during especially during the uh the early 15 and 1600s and even the 1700s really what what would they be what would the caribbean nations be without sugar these these were these are all one trick ponies uh brazil less so you know they have lots of agricultural products but in the case of the caribbean sugar islands and arabia these are one trick ponies the second you take away the oil from Saudi Arabia, the second you take away sugar from the Caribbean nations or introduce competition, or for whatever reason, you have a change in economies to where people are less dependent on oil and more dependent on a different resource, or say that there's some new thing that makes something sweet but isn't as bad for you as sugar can be, suddenly, these economies that are entirely based on these one commodities, these one products, these one services, they fall apart. And it's really hard to come back from that because of over-investing and putting all your eggs in one basket. You're just asking for trouble at that point. That's the way I've always looked at it. Uh, the same uh, thing... Uh, that that same concept really has been present in the microchip market for a while now as TSMC that's Taiwan semiconductor uh what uh yes Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company uh I blinked for a little bit <coughs> um TSMC had become the dominant force in global chip manufacturing so uh, so much so that declines in their production alone triggered a massive global chip shortage that has led to what we're seeing today where you have whole lines of cars, namely trucks, 
uh, in America where the the entire thing is finished, but you can't drive them because they're waiting for those chips from TSMC to come in, and then they install them into the vehicles so that you can drive these brand new trucks that are just sitting there, and you can't drive them. It's such a strange phenomenon to even to even sort of try to explain, but the importance of TSMC as the center of the microchip supply chain has even motivated some people in America to push for war against China should China invade Taiwan and that reason being to protect American access to those microchips now I've already countered this belief in my with my own belief that in the event of a war on Taiwan TSMC does not live to see the light of day and then the whole that whole rationale for America getting into the war would die with the company. But it seems, in, to my, much to my delight, that I may not have to entertain that nonsense for much longer. You see, since Intel is building up to eight fabricator plants in America... And these are supposed to be the, the high-end sort of types, the, the high-end types of fabricator plants that uh, that you would see in Taiwan. That That's what we're talking about here. Since Intel's building up to eight of these fabricator plants, then that too, that domestic production of chips, would completely remove any economic reason for the U.S. to get involved in a Taiwan war. So that little nonsensical rationale for getting us involved in this conflict dies once Intel sets up these fabricator plants. And I am very, 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 very happy about this. <laughs> um, yes, um, just, just yes. Okay, just yes. Because uh, at that point, at that point, we wouldn't be with the establishment of these fabricator plants if we got into a war with over Taiwan. At that point, we wouldn't be, uh, supposedly, defending our main chip supplier, but instead, we would then be actively assisting a key competitor to American chip manufacturing. Uh, I'll also add that this move by Intel has, again to my delight, highlighted that the so-called expert economists don't know what they're talking about. Now, I've come to this conclusion uh, roughly about... A year and a half ago but it's nice to be proven right <laughs> again it's nice to be proven right on and something so crucial because uh, these experts who really don't know what they're talking about uh, you you let them tell it okay because I've had to listen to them you know in whenever I look look at these hour-long discussions and debates on certain geopolitical topics you let these people tell it you can't just manufacture things in America because of this thing. Or you have to take into account that thing. And everything is so, so, so complicated that it's just it's just impossible to manufacture anything in the United States. And we just have to let our industry fade away until it doesn't exist. That's what they think. And it is infuriating listening to them basically come to that conclusion. And then Intel comes along out of the blue. And just does it. Exactly what they said you can't do. You can't just 
manufacture chips in the United States. And then Intel comes along and just, just manufactures chips in the United States. It just does it. Automatically proving once again that both, uh, proving once again both that the experts we are told are all-knowing and all-seeing and are always paraded out on TV as though they are, uh, are omnipotent and omniscient. They actually don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. And it also proves that the insight of these so-called experts is utterly worthless when discussing the future of this country. Because I could yell all day and night, just manufacture it. Because that, that was my main gripe with the whole <clears throat> we need to defend Taiwan for access to chips argument. Chips are a man-made resource. Just make the chips here. That's the solution. Not go to war over these chips. And the second the thing gets blown up anyway, you lose your Cassus Balai for war. It's like, just make them here. And especially when I found out that rare earth wasn't actually rare at all. It's just a matter of processing them. Uh, we have plenty of rare earth in the West Coast, uh, a little bit in the West Coast states, but it's it's more so in the Rockies and in the West, in, say, Wyoming and Colorado and even Montana. We have plenty of rare earth just chilling out in the United States, unused, untapped. We could, we have everything we need to manufacture these chips here, and that revelation was just a game changer for my views on chip manufacturing is we have everything we need right here just make the chips here and in comes the expert economist you can't just manufacture chips here there's this there's that you need clean rooms you need this you know that it has to be incredibly specific it takes really long time just to get the chips from production from the beginning of production to the end of production then get in the market all all, all this overcomplication of manufacturing it's like Everything that you manufacture is going to take a while to build. Like, long build-outs are nothing new to manufacturing. Like, we do this, okay? It's it, well, The bombers built in World War II weren't built one per every minute. They came off the assembly line at one per every minute, but it took a while to build them. It, the the ships that we built during World War II didn't come off at like five a day. That we didn't just build five whole ships in one day. No 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 no. You built them. It took a while to build them. You you kept building more and more and more, and then you would start finishing them. And then you started getting finished ships that took the whole whatever amount of time it took to build them. But you've built so many of them in order that they come out finished say five a day, 10 a day, and then boom, 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 boom. That's how production works. That's how production works. So, uh, um, if you couldn't tell, I'm loving this move. I'm absolutely loving Intel for doing this. And this is probably, probably the first bit of really, really good news coming out of my country uh, that I've been able to report on because it sort of comes into my field and I get to talk about it and has all sorts of geopolitical ramifications and we could even see the United States rise to become the global 
chip manufacturer. We we could overtake Taiwan with something like this, especially if Intel starts running away with the game. Or even better, if Intel's competitors go, oh, wait a second, we should have done that. And then they start building fabricator plants in the United States. And then new people step into the market and start building their own chip manufacturers in the United States. And we could become the global supplier of chips and have our own domestic production for what we need exactly the way I like it. Ah, it's beautiful. It is definitely beautiful, folks. Uh, again, if you couldn't tell, I'm loving this. Uh, and I'm happy this is a good piece of news that I can report on for my country. I mean, it's either this or I'd do a... Well, yeah, an, uh, an even longer segment on Ukraine. But I, I, I guess I ended up doing that anyway because I, I wrote this before I, I wrote this little line about Ukraine before I ended up talking about Ukraine uh, <laughs> but regardless it's nice to have some genuinely quality good news to talk about especially when it's your country that that good news comes from but that folks is all I have for you today I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast the world is changing folks america's manufacturing chips now and we're gonna have fun watching it together now i've been your host harshan wade and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics so till we meet again next monday servus